0: Well, the older I get, uh, the, f- the fuzzier my memories sort of become. I- I'm-, I'm sure others of you experience that, but especially like childhood, it's like only like snippets, little, little flashbacks anymore, little things that, that come, to- come to mind. And-, and the things that I do remember, I mean, like for, for example, I can-, I can still remember and I could paint you a picture in detail of one of the very first fallings out I had with a friend. It was field day. Kickball. His name was Jesse. It was elementary school. Or I could I could remember uh, in in such a clear way, you know, that time when I, I clobbered a, a classmate in gym. You know, just let him have it. Or or, or even even in, in fifth grade. I mean, I could I can replay it as if it's on video, right? In my mind, uh, the time when on the playground, elementary school, I, I went out and I asked Karen if she would be my girlfriend. And, and loudly for everyone to hear, she screamed out, ew, no, right? Yeah. I mean, she could have just circled no, right? It wouldn't have been that hard. Um, I mean, isn't it interesting that those are the kinds of things, I mean, my, my memories, so, so many of them are fragmented and foggy at best, and yet those things are like crystal clear in my mind. I mean, it's sort of cruel in some ways, isn't it? Uh, the way our broken minds work, right? The way we latch on to certain images, certain memories, certain things that we've experienced. And particular, particularly those, those moments of, of relational meltdown, whatever, whatever that is, right? When, when we feel the, the fragmentation or the, the challenges, I mean, when we, when we lose a relationship, it's, it's sort of like losing part of ourselves, isn't it? And then I look around now as an adult, And really, nothing's changed. Not that much, has it? I mean, I feel like we're still a bunch of insecure kids in the playground, aren't we? Um, We're we're still trying to avoid the bully and and trying to to show off to to others, right? Trying to hide our our own insecurities or the things that we um, don't like. We we gravitate towards our our little cliques and and all of those kind of things. And we're still sort of trying endlessly to prove that that we're at least better than somebody, right? Right? to feel, feel good about ourselves. I mean, even just take a moment here in this, in this spot to, to make a mental list of all the things that we humans tend to divide over. All the barriers that we end up setting in, in front of others, right, or, or protecting ourselves relationally. I mean, make a mental list. I came up with, with a few, right? Politics, uh, nations, religions, sexual ethics, age, gender, race, child rearing, how educated you are, how much money you make, white-collar versus blue-collar. We even get fights over sports teams, for crying out loud, right? We love barriers. And for all of our advances, we continually, as humans, we continually find more things to divide over, right? More things to push us out or to separate over. And even with all of our technologies, right, designed to bring us closer together as humans, it feels as if we're endlessly drifting apart we see on the news uh in every one of our relationships kids you see it on the playground don't you i mean every day right we see it in our homes in our hearts in in our churches and with every divide we build another barrier and with every heartache and disappointment or letdown, we build another barrier. And honestly, like after a while, right, there's so many barriers in my own life. I'm just wondering at some point, when is it just me left within the walls, right? All alone and everybody else sort of pushed to the edges. We do this, don't we? So what's the answer? What's, what's the solution to that? Well, you're not going to believe me when I tell you, Honestly. It sounds something foolish that only a pastor would say. Almost sounds like a joke. The ultimate answer to every relational divide, every shattered community and fractured family, that which makes us whole, it's bread and wine. I know, right? Really? The Lord's table, communion, the Eucharist, a remembrance. I mean, it's known by by plenty of names, isn't it? And yet, we so easily forget its power. That this is the one meal that breaks every barrier. And sure, I know, I mean, it's not a magic wand, okay? Uh, Let's not pretend. There's no easy fixes or quick answers to any of these divides. And yet, this, this meal breaks every barrier that heals every wound, it provides a source for all forgiveness and for every apology. It is the place where victims are vindicated and oppressors are convicted and enemies are made friends. It is where we find wholeness for our families and for our relationships. I know it sounds crazy. I mean, just unbelievable, right? It's just too good to be true, I I know. But that's what we're gonna see this morning as we open our Bibles and continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We've been studying along in in 1 Corinthians uh, for quite some time as a church and now we're in chapter 11 and and we're beginning to see how not only is this church messed up individually, relationally, and and the problems that they experience, uh, but those problems even pervade into their life together as a community. Even in this area of the Lord's Supper, now, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're just sort of curious why it is we Christians do this thing, right, for 2,000 years. Why, why Christians have gathered around this table. Why we take something as simple as bread and wine and, and pretend, right, that it's, it's the body and blood of Jesus and then actually eat it, right? I mean, those of us who are Christians, we're used to that, right? We've done it so often, but I mean, if you're new to this, right, it's this, that's, that's weird, isn't it? In fact, early Christians were actually accused, there's evidence of this in some of the historical documents, were actually accused of cannibalism. I mean, seriously. Because they were always talking about gathering around this table and eating the body and blood of Jesus. And certainly it's a a symbol, right? It's not actually his body and blood that we gather around. And yet we know know that it's weird, don't we? We know that there's, there's nothing else quite like it And yet what it stands for changes everything. My life, my relationships, the way I view myself and the way that I view others. And it can change you. Now as we look at what's going on here, in, in, in Corinth, right, in their church, this church so long ago, uh, we're going to see three things, and we're going to try to connect those things to, to us, right, and to our community, and, to, and the way that we, we also build barriers. Here are, the, here are the three things. First of all, we're going to see that we are expert barrier builders, okay, no surprises there, right? We're experts, uh, but he is an expert barrier breaker. That's part of, part of what he comes to do, is to break barriers in our lives, and the, the third thing, Paul makes it clear, it's not too late for any of us, There's always hope for us in all of our contexts, in all of our relationships, because one meal breaks every barrier. Okay, so we're, we're expert barrier breakers. Does anybody actually doubt that statement? I mean, just look around, right? It's pretty obvious. We, we seen, we're pros at building walls, right? At, at dividing and finding things to fight over. Of course, we're good at it. But what's so shocking, and so shocking for Paul as we get here, is that even after we've met Jesus, we're still so good at it. I mean, that's what Paul can't get his mind around, right? If Jesus is who, he's, who he said he is, if he came to do what he did, uh, then, then how is it possible that we still do this for those, for those of us who are Christians, if there's one place that should be free from judgmentalism, right? From, from gossip, from cliques, from, from those kinds of things that we divide over, biases towards one another, prejudices towards others, racism and, and selfishness, right? Is if there's one place those things should not exist, it's here, right? It's we who center around this God who comes. And then there's Corinth. Corinth. Oh, man, is Paul mad. I mean, we've seen him get a little frustrated, right, as we've gone through this letter, but this this is the breaking point for the Apostle Paul. I'm gonna begin reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Begin reading in verse 17. So Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Okay, that's a bad sign, right? Uh, he's saying that your church services are actually causing more harm than good. It'd be better for you if you just didn't even meet together anymore. That's a little harsh, right? But look, look why he says that, verse, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. A little, little sarcasm there, I think. And then verse, verse 20, when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's your own stupid meal. For for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, we've been studying this letter for a while, right? And we've seen that this church, they've, they've got their problems, right? We've, we've talked about incest and lawsuits and prostitution and idol worship. And all throughout those issues, right, Paul has pretty much kept his cool. He's, he's kept it, you know, under, under control. And now this, this is what sets him off. Not those other things, right? The things that we kind of run to and say, "Well, look at the, what those you know, bad people out there are doing. It's not, it's not that that gets him irate with anger. It is, it's these divisions, these quarrels, this, these endless fighting, these, this classism uh, that he has seen within the church. And a few verses later, he's going to tell them, it, "It's like you're crucifying Jesus all over again. When you divide, when you ignore, when you neglect, when we build barriers. You see, early practice of the uh, of, of the Lord's Supper in the early church was a little bit different than the way that we do it, right? I mean, we do it pretty simple, right, with little little pieces of bread and we we dip it together. But for, for them, early on, it was often often celebrated as a full meal, sort of potluck style. I mean, it was it was a, a feast, a celebration that Jesus had come out of the tomb, right? And, and early on, the, the church began doing this on Sundays because they wanted to, to remember that was the day that Jesus had walked out of the grave. And so it was, it was their point of celebration. And in that culture, to share a meal with someone was to share life with them. I mean, it, it wasn't simply a, a matter of convenience or, or because they liked the food. or so. It was because they were saying to one another, we, we're, we are together in this. I mean, similar to what we do with baby dedications, right? When we commit to one another, that's what, that's what sharing a meal would have meant for them. And the church in Corinth, we've we've seen this as well, right? It was an incredibly diverse group of people, all all brand new to following Jesus, but had rich and poor, and slave and free, had the working class and the aristocracy all there together in the church, gathered around remembrance of Jesus. And think back, right, to that culture. uh, Little things that we would miss, okay? Sunday was a work day for them, it's not a day off. And so what's likely happening here is that the Christians would gather after work, right, to celebrate that meal together. And, and again, what's, what's likely going on in this context is that uh, the rich, right, the, the, the aristocracy, uh, they either didn't have to work or they, they got off early, right? They didn't have to work as long. And so uh, they would begin the party, right? They'd get together and they would bring all of the primo potluck items, uh, the best wine and plenty of it, and, and they'd start pre-gaming in the best part of the house, Right? Enjoying one another. But, but then a little bit later, the working class, the poor, the slaves would show up after, after a long day at work. And you know, they'd, they'd bring in their, their meager contributions to the potluck. But that, by that point, essentially what's going on is all that's left is the, the, the tuna casserole that nobody likes, right? Uh, the, the dregs of the wine, if any, and there's no room in, in the main gathering where all the, all the fancy people are hanging out, and so they'd be forced, most likely, to go out and sit at the kids' table with all the other poor people. Do this in remembrance of me. Probably not what Jesus had in mind, Right? That is what's going on in this ancient community. And here's the reality. That kind of behavior was absolutely acceptable in their culture. I mean, not not just acceptable. It was just the normal way of doing things, right? Kind of for us too, right? We separate based on, on who we are. Birds of a feather flock together, right? And so, you know, we, we in the suburbs, we have a different level, maybe economic situation as, as those others around us, right? And we, we divide, we separate. It was normal to do so. It's still normal to do so, to separate rich and poor, educated and uneducated, beautiful and plain, powerful and powerless. Frankly, anybody who's different from us It's just what we do. Normal human behavior. But Jesus didn't die to make us normal, did he? I mean, when Jesus came, he came for everybody, especially the lowly, right? Uh, He hung out with the poor, the outcasts, the unloved and unwanted, the people that you and I probably wouldn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, right? Right? or maybe maybe we wouldn't go that far, right? We wouldn't want to be that cruel, but we certainly wouldn't want their kids playing with our kids, would we? Or in the same schools together. And here they are at church, continuing to make sure that the best get the best, that everybody stays in their appropriate places arguing selfishly manipulating one-upping anything to make themselves feel good and superior. Wow, we've evolved. Haven't we? I mean, if we if we humans can ruin the Lord's supper, there's really no end to the terrible things that we can do. Why? Why do we do that? I think you have to go back to the garden, right? I mean, there in that perfect world, right, the place that God had created, we were made for each other. I mean, community and and relationship, that's part of our our DNA. It's part of the very fabric of of who we are as as humans, right? We need one another. I think that's why it hurts so much when we divide, when we have those relational meltdowns and and divides and separate. why they pain us so deeply. And our perfection in the garden, it didn't last. Right, we, we declared war on our creator, and instantly, Adam and Eve begin hiding. They begin trying to do anything they possibly can to cover their shame, and they start blaming one another, and they start, they start blaming God, and essentially, God says to them, right, basically says, you humans, you're not going to get along anymore, that this is part of what this, this rift has done in us, and through, that we, we're just, we're broken, And we're going to fight and we're going to continue fighting. And we've been hiding and blaming and drifting ever since. And so before we move on, we've got to locate our own barriers, don't we? I mean, hopefully even as we've talked, right, and certainly for me working through some of these things this week, right, we begin to recognize, though, what are the things that crop up in our lives? Maybe it's between you and another person, right? Somebody who's hurt you. Maybe it's, maybe it's you and, and, and a group of people that you just really don't care for, would prefer to keep at arm's length. What are those barriers in your life and mine? Because, you know, for example, when we, when we do communion here, uh, for those of you who don't know, when we do communion here, we, we gather around the tables uh, in groups, typically, right? Because it's a, it's a family meal. It's not, it's not a meal between me and Jesus. It's between us and Jesus, right? That's that's the meal that this is. And so who would you really prefer wasn't in your group? You know, standing next to you, taking the bread. Who's unwelcome there? A coworker, Or a boss? A spouse or an ex-spouse? Maybe it's a parent or a sibling. A friend or more likely an ex-friend. Maybe it's just somebody who's... You just, they're just your enemy, right? You can't stand them. Maybe, maybe it's not a person. I mean, we, we probably have those people in our lives, those individuals, but but maybe for you, maybe it's more of a people than a person. Maybe it's a race or a social class. Who is unwelcome here with you? The person who always votes differently from you. The undocumented worker. Is it is it the person who experiences same sex attraction here with with his friend? Is that person unwelcome? Maybe it's somebody who prefers not to learn English or to adopt your social customs. Could you eat from the same loaf as the man dying from AIDS? Or the cross dresser? Or the prostitute? the woman in a burqa or the person who spread that terrible rumor about you or got promoted instead of you or cut you off in traffic or just ignored you or neglected you or somehow somehow made you feel less do this in remembrance of me oh yeah those people we've got our barriers don't we every one of us things that push us apart things things that make us feel like we're we're better right that we have our junk a little bit more under control i'm sure you're shocked and outraged by this discovery right we're expert barrier builders but he he is an expert barrier breaker this one meal breaks every barrier and i, I love where paul goes right because he's he's just I mean, he's laid it on thick, right, with this church in Corinth, right? If you were listening along as I read those words, he is, has is given it to them. And, and then he, he not only points out the severe problem that it is for, for that church and, and for us, right? We deal with these things as well. He Then he shows them the solution, and it's nothing even remotely profound. I mean, it's nothing that they had never even heard before. I mean, it's, all, I mean, it's words as common as they are for so many of us. Look, look what he says to them, verse Verse 23. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So picture the scene, right? It's the night before Jesus' execution. They're in that upper room, gathered around a meal with his really his only friends, and they would they would abandon him shortly as well. It's the Passover meal. Uh, the Passover is a feast that, that the Jewish people have, have celebrated uh, for thousands of years. Even at that point, they probably celebrated for about 1,500 years, over and over and over again, this reminder of what God had, had done. It harkens all the way back to their slavery in Egypt, right? When they were an oppressed people group there, and, and Moses and the, the plagues and, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, all of that, that's all part of this, part of this story. And, and the 10th plague was that every firstborn son would die. And it didn't matter who you were, Jewish or Egyptian, didn't matter, slave or free, didn't matter, rich or poor, none of it mattered. God was going to judge, and God, God's judgment rightly, rightly comes on all of us because we've, we've declared war on him. And it was coming for those people unless, unless they put the blood of the lamb they were eating above their door. And if they did, and only if they did, then the angel of death would pass over them. That's, that's where that phrase comes from, right? They, they would be spared. And again, it didn't matter who you were or what you'd done. If you had the faith to put the blood of the lamb on the door, then that was enough. You'd be spared. And it's, it's this meal that Jesus is eating with his friends. And Jesus, classic Jesus, he just he basically says, this, everything that we're doing here, this whole meal, it's all about me what he says which is either the most narcissistic thing anybody could possibly say right this meal that we as a people have been burdened and celebrating for 1500 years every year this it's it's all about me it's either the most ridiculous claim imaginable or maybe just maybe it's really about him And, and he says that this 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 meal is, is a symbol, it's a promise of the of new covenant, of, of a new and better way that God was promising to, to reach out and to encounter his people and allow his people to encounter him, that it was better than the exodus, better a better freedom, a better uh, rescue than even, even the Red Sea, even the Passover. Because what's, what's missing from this scene with Jesus? There's bread and there's wine, but what's the most important part of the meal? The Passover meal. It's the lamb, right? But Jesus is the lamb. It's his blood that would cover our sins, sparing us from the judgment that would come. The lamb died in place of those people so long ago, and Jesus, Jesus dies in our place. And you and I, we get to reenact that every single time we come to this table that we get, we get to be actors in this cosmic play. It's as if we are there in that moment, right, that, that we can imagine, that we get to enter in, that we are participants with the disciples throughout 2,000 years and every time and place, right, that this meal has been separated, that we were there together, and we get to taste God. I know, not, not literally, of course. And yet, at the same, doesn't that just blow you away? That, that, that God, the God of the universe, the God that made everything, including bread and wine, that our God enters our senses. The invisible God who seems so out of reach not only becomes human, but symbolically becomes something that our physicality can even participate in. I mean, he can't get any lower than this, can he? I mean, not only does he stoop to becoming a human, right, to entering his world, the world that he made, he allows his, his own life and death to be represented by something as mundane as bread and wine, two things that would have been present in almost every meal in that culture, just as simple and plain and normal as anything. And he says that we proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim that, that he is our covering, that it's his blood above our doors, uh, that he will come and he will judge, but we will be safe, and not just safe, but made whole, and that all that is wrong will be made right, like the Passover. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, and sure, Jesus, he never leaves us where we were, Right? He's always changing us, always leading us to become more into the people that he created us to be. But if you come to him in faith, this feast is yours. And he is yours. And even better, you are his. And we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. David, my eight-year-old, uh, this past week was working on something for Sunday school. Um, and so he was asking me a few questions. And, and one of the questions in particular, he, he asked, he said, Dad, uh, what, and he's trying to you know, take notes and that kind of thing. What do you think of when you, when you hear the fact that because of Jesus, God is going to forgive every sin you commit? And I, I don't know if I was just tired or bleak, right, or just feeling guilt, but the only word that could come to my mind was shocked. Just Shocked. That, that, that is true about me, because also last week, I, I did something, I don't even remember what it was, but uh, Eden, my six-year-old, was there, um, she's not listening, that's, that's, that's typical, um, that's all right, um, probably better that way anyway, uh, but I, did, I messed up in front of her, I don't even remember what it was, but I said to, I said to her, you know what, daddy's the worst, that's, I just was, that was my response to her, and she looked at me, you know, in you know, such an encouraging way that a six-year-old can she said, yeah, kind of, Um <laughs> but I still love you, right? <laughs> but what's, what's so shocking is that the God of the universe, the holy God who made everything, the one that I have rebelled against, that I live my life trying to defeat, essentially, that he sees everything, even the very darkest places of who I am, the places that I, I don't want anybody to know, I, the, the, deep within me. And because of Jesus, he sees me as his son, perfect holy, beautiful and good. That's how he looks at me. Do this in remembrance of me. So who's not welcome at this table? If you confess Jesus, you aren't just welcome. This is this is home. This is a place of rest and sustenance and joy that is meant to sustain us. It's the, the meal that keeps us going over and over again. It is the one meal that breaks every barrier, but how? How does it do that? Well, we've got to remember what he's already broken. Not just a loaf of bread. Not just his body on the cross, but all that is evil. Your your sin is mine. Even death itself, it is all coming undone. I mean, even think about that, right? The biggest barrier that exists is the one between us and our creator because of our rebellion against him. A a barrier that we could never cross. And yet Jesus, by his own life, death, and resurrection, has shattered that barrier. If If he can break that barrier, is there any barrier that he can't break? And if that's true, because, you know, in a little bit we're going to line up, right, for communion. And we're going to gather around this table. And the reality is some of us are going to come filled with pride, right? And we're going to come because it makes us feel good about ourselves or we get to, to look good in front of the people around us or, or we'll come with bitterness deep-seated in our hearts or unforgiveness or, or our continued bias and prejudice towards other people. We, we will come, right? We will. With our own self-inflated opinions, and the reality is, if you're not a Christian, maybe that's even why you're not a Christian, right? You, you see us, you, you see the things in us that we are so often oblivious to, the sin that is so pervasive within us. But that is not this meal. People, when we, when we line up this ta- at this table, we line up like the drug addict at a methadone clinic. We line up like the woman with AIDS at the retroviral treatment center. This is the welfare line. It's the unemployment line. It is the holding tank for all the kids picked last in kickball, right? It is the place for the lowly, for the despised, for the rejected, those who have gotten a glimpse of how broken they really are and realize that they just can't do it on their own and they need something to sustain them. That is this meal. Nothing else. There is no pride for the drug addict in the methadone clinic. None. None. All of it is gone. It is shattered. We come hungry, desperate for a meal that will give us life because we've tried everything else, and we just can't do it anymore, and that ought to break down every barrier. There can be no pride here. If you follow Jesus, there is no one that you cannot forgive. There is no one you cannot partner with or be reconciled to. No one. And there is no one it's okay for you to ignore or neglect or mistreat. Not not if this is your table. Because the only way the God of the universe who can do anything, by the way, but the only way that he could rescue me is by entering into the world that he made, becoming a man, dying on a cross, suffering all the wrath of God that belonged to me, and coming back to life again. I am that far gone. And I am so dearly loved, he was glad to do it. Listen to these words. One author writes, Christianity certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group, or a wall against the world. But it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things, or in the same way, or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognize each other. Church isn't a social club for the superior, it's rehab for sinners. More than that, it's it's a morgue where the dead are brought back to life. This is the one meal that humbles us to the depths and yet at the same time exalts us to the heights because God was glad to do it for us. And when we remember all that he has already broken, how can we not begin to see the walls crumbling around us? Because we don't have to make ourselves superior anymore. That's what so much of it comes down to, right? We want to feel good about ourselves, better than those people or whoever those people are, right? We we want to do. We don't have to do that anymore, right? Why do we, why do we even try? We, we, if you're a Christian, you're a son or daughter of God himself, the one who made you the king of the universe, right? I mean, what are you trying to prove? Or even self-protection, right? The way we retreat into insecurity or we hide away, like we don't have to do that anymore. Everything we need has been promised to us, and he promises to make everything right, everything wrong in our world and in our lives. He'll make it right, Arrogance and insecurity, both are pride, by the way. Arrogance and insecurity, both are pride. But both are demolished at this table. One scholar writes, the Lord's Supper not only gathers a community, it creates a community. But the reality is, if you persist with your barriers, or your bitterness, or your unforgiveness, or your prejudice, or whatever it is, then maybe you haven't met him yet which frightens me because I I see how all of those things crop into my life, right? Every one of them and how I I struggle with and the the things that run deep within my soul. I I see those and it frightens me. But Paul makes it so clear it's not too late for any of us. It's not even too late for them in Corinth. And because Paul, I mean, he lets them know that if if they keep it up, God is going to come with harsh discipline into their lives, but every warning comes with hope, doesn't it? I mean, that's the point of the warning, right? That we, that we choose a, a different path. So look, look what he says in verse 27. These are some harsh words. Look what he says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, which I think in the context there, an unworthy manner means with disregard to the community, to the relationships that exist between another human. It's not just sort of an, any open-ended sort of self-examination, although I think that's appropriate, but it's specifically about the community. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Yikes. Did you catch that there? So some of your diseases and some of your untimely deaths are because of this. Are, are, are God's discipline in your life? Not, not all illness, illnesses, okay? Not, not all untimely deaths, certainly not, but do you see how serious God takes this? This, this meal and relationship with the community that he, that he gave his life for. Don't think for a moment God couldn't do that in your life or mine. It seems, it seems harsh, but actually, I mean, it is, it is harsh, but Paul, I love, he calls it really an act of God's grace. Look, look how he continues in verse 33, maybe, maybe not feel like grace. Look what he says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Better to be disciplined, even if it leads to our death. I mean, God only disciplines his children, only disciplines out of love. Better to be disciplined, Paul says, than to be condemned. It reminds me of an old hymn. It says, "O oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be? Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Have you ever prayed that? I have, it's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean to essentially say, "God, you know what? If you see me about to abandon you, to forsake you, if you see me about to bring disgrace upon you, God, would you kill me first? Would, would you take me away from this place where I can do so much harm to myself and to my family and to those I love? But before it gets to that point, and Paul says, "Examine yourself." and repent, and, and specifically, again, given the context, it's, it's about our treatment of others, right? The barriers that we build, your relationships, bitterness or unforgiveness or impatience, and, and even specifically, right, your care for the poor and the, the marginalized, those who so easily get discarded or neglected in a society like ours. Don't wait to make it right. I and mean, I would guess for many of us, the next step from this morning, for most of us probably, is to apologize to somebody or, or to seek forgiveness from somebody, Maybe for others, it's just simply a a time to to set aside, to ask God to begin breaking down some of those walls so you even, even gain a better perception of the people around you or more likely maybe just a better perception of yourself, right? And even just take one step towards wholeness this morning. One meal breaks every barrier and that work has to begin before we come to this table. I don't know what that means for you right? I don't know your, your circumstance or the challenges or the things that, that have come to mind, but I'm guessing you do, right? We, we listen to the words like this, right? We, we hear this passage, and I think for most of us, right, some of those barriers begin to surface. We begin to see and, and realize some of those prejudices or biases that we, that we possess, that the relationships, the people we've alienated, right, or neglected. Well, today is the day that we let him make it right. And so before, before we come, let's do exactly what Paul tells us to do, let's examine ourselves. Let's pray and ask God to reveal these things to us and to begin the process of change in our hearts and in our lives. So let's, let's pray quietly together now in this moment. Let's pray.